Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1949 film A Letter to Three Wives. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great. Uh, Barrett, this is our second uh, Joseph Mankiewicz film. Um, so we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to talk some Joseph Mankiewicz today. But to start off with, what is your history with this film? Is this something you had seen before? Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I can't remember if it was a Joseph Mankiewicz uh, Jag or a Linda Darnell Jag several years ago. But yeah, I have I have seen it uh, at least once in the past, uh, maybe twice. Um, so this is our second film from uh, from Joseph Mankiewicz. We we watched nineteen fifties uh, All About Eve. Um, it's really interesting to think, you know, last, we're going to do some comparisons with last week's film. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but one of the things we can compare it with is Preston Sturgis is a director who sort of had a, a little miracle run of writing and directing movies. And Mankiewicz was on his own, uh, it was on a pretty good run in the late forties, early fifties. Uh, he directed four films in 1949, 1950. So a letter to three wives, house of strangers, all about even no way out. For this, he had five Oscar nominations and four wins, two for Best Director, two for Best Screenplay. So this film won Best Adapt, I think Best Adapted Screenplay and uh, Best Director for uh, for Mankiewicz. That surprised me. I did not go into this, and even when I watched it the first time, nothing jumped out to me to say this is this movie was a would be a major Oscar player. Um, why is that, Sam? What, what, what were you looking for that you didn't see? Well, this is part of my narrative with the film, because I will say in my first watching of the film, this movie felt in it. Part of it is I'm comparing it to All About Eve, which I think is a totemic, like great, great movie. This seems slight to me in comparison. Now, upon rewatching it, it started to work on me and I started to say, oh, there's like a lot more interesting things here. I think part of this is I was thinking about the movie we watched last week and I was thinking about Preston Sturgis and I maybe have more sensibilities towards Sturgis than than Mankiewicz uh, perhaps I mean uh, Sturgis is funnier I think than Mankiewicz or at least a different kind of funny this movie is is funny but it's not funny in the same uh, in the same ways to me and, and this movie's more um, dramatic I think as well yeah it, it well it's yeah, it, it actually surprised me how there are moments of humor that I hadn't remembered in the film. And, you know, I think of Sturge's humor as being at times fairly pointed, sardonic. And I think that's true of Mankiewicz, too. Um, there's a real there's a real kind of edge edginess to some of Mankiewicz's uh, humor. Um, I guess I would describe him at times as kind of arch. Uh, although in this film, I think there's a lot there's there's broader humor provided by characters like Thelma Ritter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the uncredited role of, of Sadie. But, you know, it's an interesting comment you say about the film being slight because I found the more I, and, I, and I've, you know, I watched it a couple times, and I found the more I reflected on what was going on in the film, I think actually there's a lot more there than you realize at, at first. And I think those will come out in our, in, in, in our conversation. Um, but you're, you're, you're right. It, it's, a, it's, on a, it's on kind of a different scale uh, than all about Eve, but I think that's in, in te- intentional. The other thing I find pretty interesting and significant about the film is its architecture. I just think it's it's built in so many interesting ways. I think there's at least two different ways you can look at it. You can look at it as a three-act play. You can look at it as a five-act play. And then within that, what he does both with the flashbacks and then with what happens when it comes into, into uh, the current time I just think he's juggling. We talked a lot about this in Unfaithful Yours. I think he's juggling a lot of balls here. And I think it's pretty interesting how how it fits together in in different ways for each couple. So how how he plays variations on the theme. And by the way, as you know, it started out as Letter to Five Wives, mm-hmm. which is what he adapted. And I mean, five doesn't make any sense to me. Three seems to be kind of the perfect number. So I just like the way he kind of plays with the similarities and the differences among among these couples, but maybe because it is at a domestic scale, unlike All About Eve, which is much more about a different world, maybe that's one reason it seems a little bit smaller. Well, and you just described to me my second viewing, and I and I, I maybe listeners, this is something worth doing. Is like I find when I sit and take notes on a movie, like if I'm, it's like this movie opened up the second time. Everything you just said, I felt the second time around. I thought, 
Oh, this is interesting. I hadn't noticed he did this this early in the movie. And I think architecture is the right word, that there is um, things he does with how he introduces characters, how he removes characters from the, from the story as you go and things like that. It's like, it's 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 actually really interesting. So when I when I was in, upon my first viewing, I was like, okay, maybe I could see screenplay, which he won for. Second viewing, I'm like, absolutely screenplay. This is really well written in terms of not just what they're saying, but like structurally. And I really was baffled by director. But again, after watching it a second time, I'm like, well, this is interesting. Like it it is it is very interesting. In the same way, I think. I think this is such a perfect pairing with Unfaithfully Yours because I do feel like both of them are doing one thing on the surface and then they're using structure to do some other things um, as well. So I, 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 I'm I, going to spoil the end of this. I really liked this movie by the second time I watched it and uh, and it, it felt far less. It actually felt like it had a lot more ideas than I think the first time through, maybe because I didn't know what I was, what I should be looking for. And to be fair, I was um, I was comparing it to All About Eve, which is a movie that um, in night in the the next year is this kind of monumental movie year because you get All About Eve, Sunset Boulevard, The Third Man, three movies that I think are among the great movies made. Um, so in 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 All About Eve, I don't dispute that it you know it won Best Picture. I'm like that's fine, even though I'm a Sunset Boulevard person. But I so I had this high view of like. Mankiewicz director writer and and I think my first viewing was just a little bit like wait he did that but then he's doing but he did and again the orders reversed all buddy comes after this but I think I was probably unfairly comparing it with something where he's going after something a little bit uh bigger and like you said the scale's a little bit bigger so I think I was probably viewing this movie a little unfairly my first time I think the other reason maybe when you said it surprised you a bit that it got director and I didn't bother to see who he, who was up against in 49. It's, you uh, know what it is? It's, it's really good directors not making their best work. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like Carol um, Reed is there. Um, there's a couple others and they're all like, I think a lot of them are people who eventually win best director Oscars, but like four things, but, not th- but in 1949 was not their best. Yeah, but you know, I mean, the the knock against Mankiewicz um, has always been that he's a very um, theatrical director, in that that is his that his films look more like staged plays than they do like actual films, and and in this it's true. I mean, this there there's a lot of interior uh, work in this in this picture, and um, and I think that pictures with really smart scripts, which which t- tend to reflect a more theatrical approach to dialogue for, for, for whatever reason. But, well, I mean, I think it's obvious when, when, you, when you're dealing with a theater set or a theater uh, production, you're dealing with fewer technical resources. So you have to rely more on the language. But at the same time, I think directors like, um, uh, uh, I mean, I think, that, I think it's other, other, other directors who demonstrate that you can have both, the Tarantino, that you can have an amazing script and amazing amazing visuals, and I will say that I, I think there are some very nice visual touches in in this film. Um, two in particular, I would note. One is um, in the scene when uh, Deborah is dancing and she's had too much to drink, and you get a subjective point of view of, of her her, uh, her vision blurring a bit. And then there's a shot at the end that actually kind of anticipates uh, Bergman breaking the fourth wall when she looks directly into the camera and says to us, my husband has run away with Addie Ross. Um, you know, you, you don't hang a best director on two shots, but it just suggests to me that um, Mankiewicz had a more interesting visual imagination than he's often given credit for. Yeah, and I will say uh, 49 is also really, it's like the the quality is diffuse. Uh, it's the first year in the history of the Oscars where every Best Picture nominee won at least two Oscars oh. or something. So yeah. it's like because I, I think it's um uh all the all the king's men would have been yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. um but the, but there's it's it's like if you look at the Oscars there's not like a dominant powerhouse so yeah. you know presumably the the Oscar body was looking at Mankiewicz and it's like well we see a a real talent here and then the next year he sort of confirms that with with something uh, with something much bigger um 
I'm curious. You paired this movie with Unfaithfully Yours, which these feel like they were made to be watched together. Again, the more you think about them, the more they feel like that, and the more they feel like two uh, two auteurs who are who are were given the same assignment and came up with very different answers. So, what I'm curious about is like, are these movies that you've seen paired before, or is this a Baird Fisher pairing? Yeah, this is my pairing. Uh, it's just a, and, and I'm glad you gave me that that opening, um, Sam, because I wanted to say, in addition to the the basis of the pairing that I talked about last time, which is the way they're they're both investigations of marriage. Um, and you see, I suppose you could say there's elements of jealousy going on here, although now it's the women that are jealous rather than than the man. Um, it's these three flashbacks versus the three pros- prospects. So that's maybe the deepest reason for, and, and and as we just talked about the the cleverness of the scripts, both really well written, well written films. But then the more you know, kind of arbitrary ones or superficial ones that led me into this. It's the same studio. It's 20th Century Fox, same music director, uh, Alfred Newman. Uh, obviously, in Unfaithful Years, he didn't compose the music; he directed it. In this film, he composed and directed. Until John Williams broke his record, uh, Newman was nominated for 45 Oscars. He won nine. Uh, and this is sort of in the middle of that run. He is, by the way, the uncle of Randy Newman, uh, the popular singer. Uh, and then just this is just a really weird one. Linda Darnell and Barbara Lawrence play sisters in both films. Hmm. So for, for what for what that's worth. So anyway, so I, I think there's connections that are you know worth exploring. And there's some that are just kind of superficial. I didn't even catch Barbara Lawrence as the that I didn't I didn't connect that. That's great. Yeah, she's yeah she's babe. But it, it's funny she she looks she looks so much younger and and slimmer. I I I, I had to double check that, but yeah, that's that's her. <laughs> that's that's crazy. So I want to do a little bit of thinking about uh, comparing where these two movies are doing something similar and where. Sturgis and Mankiewicz uh, have different ideas. I like to, th- and I know it's not this, but I like to think of this as like a writer's exercise that they were given <laughs> an idea and they and they both created something really interesting with it. So to me, what what's interesting is both of these movies are about taking marriages and planting that seed of doubt yeah. uh, and then watching how that seed works on somebody. Um, but Mankiewicz wants to play with this idea in a different way. Um, so Sturgis plants the seed of doubt in a marriage that seems, um, you know, on its on its face, like they're very confident in their marriage. It almost seems like this perfect marriage. And then we see how doubt can even tear this apart. Mankiewicz, when he shows us this marriage before the letter, these marriages we're already kind of seeing things, you know, where, where um, I mean, that's why what I love is in that opening scene, you see Debbie already showing jealousy about Addie Ross. Like there has not, the letter's not there yet. So we're already seeing like um, tears around the edges, maybe, you know, so he's, he's preparing us for that. Um, I think that the, the other thing that's really interesting to me, and I, I, I want to know your thoughts, both in terms of the difference between Mankiewicz and Sturgis, but also maybe the difference between how gendered this is, mm-hmm. is that uh, Sir Alfred, with the seed of doubt, it makes him look forward about what he's going to do. And for the for the three wives, it makes them look backwards about potentially what have they done or what has happened in their marriage. Alfred doesn't think about, we don't see him think about why would she do this? He thinks about what I'm going to do. Now, are those, I'm curious how much of those responses are the differences in who's creating this story and how much of it is is the, the difference in how people are viewing maybe how men and women stereotypically might think about something like infidelity. It's a good question, Sam. Um... I, I think what it I think it tells you something about the different sensibilities of the two directors. Um, you know, when I think about Sturgis, he has, I mean, really, with the exception of the Lady Eve, um, he doesn't really have any films in which the woman is the more dominant character. I mean, to a certain extent, in Hail the Conquering Hero, A Miracle of Morgan's Creek. I mean, he 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 does have a balanced view, but I think he tends to take either. Uh, either the the male point of view or or it's kind of an equal equal contest. I think that 
Mankiewicz is much more interested in this film with the, the female point of view. Um, and he's, he's interested, you know, what to me, one of the big themes of the film is he's really interested in a social commentary at a level that Sturgis is not. I mean, Stur I mean, I, I think you, you could argue, I, I guess I will argue, you could argue that the story of um, Unfaithfully Yours is in a certain respect timeless. You know, when we looked at the film, I compared it to Othello. I mean, and, and you could say that Sturgis is interested in the problem of jealousy, which can occur in any culture at any time. Mankiewicz is much more socially specific. I, I think he's really thinking about this, these particular marriages in this particular place, this particular time. There are so many socially specific things going on that are creating conflicts within the marriages that Addie Ross uh, exploits. So, you know, with Deborah and Brad, you have her basic insecurity about not fitting into his socioeconomic circle. Um, with George and Rita, you have this basic disagreement over, over the, the, the value of what she's doing versus, versus his intellectual pursuits. And with Porter and, um, and, uh, Laura, and Laura May, you have this question of, well, neither of them really knows if they were in love to begin with. Uh, and again, that's because she comes from literally the other side of the tracks and he's the, and he's the boss. So this is power differential. So I think that Mankiewicz is much more interested in this is 1949 America. How do the relationships between men and women look in 1949 America? Sturgis, it's 1948, but it could be almost any year. So I think yeah. that's the fundamental difference. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's it's interesting because the other thing Sturgis does, he very pointedly. And this this takes some of my anxiety away when we get to the end of the Sturgis film is Sturgis takes uh, kind of money out of the picture because we know that that August has, mm -hmm. you know, a hundred million dollars. But we know that that uh, Alfred's a millionaire as well. So it's like we don't have to like everybody. It's in a completely wealthy world. Now, what's interesting about this movie is in the setup, we understand that all of these people are currently two two of the couples are very wealthy yep. brad seems to be from a wealthy family um porter owns these stores so he he might i don't know he might be the richest person in there i'm we're on it's unclear about that and then we know that um that george and rita the phipses are on they're on the way up so nobody is currently in a state of of um or everybody's currently in a state of at least probably upper middle class if not higher but Mankiewicz is really interested in sort of the class tensions that still are in these things. Because each one of these stories, there is um, money is part of this to some degree. Money or upbringing or, or some or So either either wealth or class is tied in with this, but in different ways. He's not telling the same story over and over. Um, mm -hmm. He's finding right. different edges within it. And I find that really, really interesting. And, and, and he establishes that at the very beginning from the opening of Addie Ross's um, narration. You know, she tells you, you know, that's the part of the country I'm from. So she doesn't say this is Greenwich, Connecticut, but it could be Greenwich. It could be Stamford. Any, any of those kind of commuter towns for people going, going to New York. Uh, it's a very New Yorker kind of world. And, and, she, and she tells you that right away. She's, she kind of sets it up culturally. She sets it up physically. So you get the river, you go down the main street. I don't know which main street it is. I didn't check to see where he filmed it, but it's interesting because there is a, uh, there's an actual Howlingsworth um, uh, mm. department store that appears on the, on, on the right side of the street as, as that tracking shot goes down, goes down the street. So he, so from the very beginning, he tells us this is a very uh, specific story set in a very specific place and, uh, and, and time and social, social milieu. Now, one of the things that I love about the um, the way this movie begins, and maybe this is the sort of, um, you know, playwright version of this, is that he slowly introduces characters and then he slowly pulls as he slowly pulls characters away as well um, to highlight certain certain people at certain times, but also to plant seeds about things for later. This movie is. This is why the second watch is so great is there's so many things you see early that mm -hmm. I didn't track the first time because it happened really fast. But you're like, oh, 
I noticed I noticed she said that. So for example, in the opening scene with Brad and Debbie, you know, like we see the mansion they're in. We see that Brad has packed a bag and has said very explicitly, I probably won't be home tonight. Like the movie <laughs> opens with that, which is going to become a tension point later. Mm-hmm. We also get Debbie expressing both a kind of jealousy or insecurity about Addie Ross and particularly about a dress, which I forgot all about that. The, you know, the first time I watched this, so then later on when we get to this whole thing about the dress, it's like, Oh, that hits with the second time through that line hit with more meaning because I realized later on, I'm going to learn she has insecurity about going to this country club wearing a particular dress and and she thought it was unfit. So it's like, that's really great. But I, the first time through, you don't remember that. I didn't remember that when I got to the dress later. So because he's doing these flashbacks, he's actually in the present. We're not aware of things we're going to be aware of later that happened in the past. It's the structure is really great in terms of that. I'll make one, I'll make one more uh, simply coincidental connection on Faithfully Yours on that note, Sam, because one of the, one of the lines in Faithfully Yours I forgot to talk about last time was at the end that she's going to wear the purple dress with the plume at the hips. And, and it's interesting. So even in Unfaithfully Yours, that dress actually becomes a kind of a key element in their, mm-hmm. in their reconciliation. Um, and then we get, we get uh, Debbie picking up Rita. We, we meet George. We see the, the, the blue suit, the, he's not going fishing. We also see Rita mentions needing to go to the train station which again, the first time through, I didn't know what she was talking about when she said to drop off her copy. And you realize, oh, this is the thing that's been the tension of the marriages. I've been up all night writing. Now I got to rush this to the train station. And that's where she sees Porter at the train station, which Mankiewicz is great of not showing us that. But later on, he tells us uh, through Rita, oh yeah, I was at the train station and I saw Porter there. So then that could be like, again, structurally, there's a lot of, things happening really um off to the side but if you're paying attention all of those details are meaningful or should tell you something about other things going on in the story i really this this screenplay is really good yeah it's it's almost dickensian in that sense right it's like all these all these things that look like coincidences are happening but they all actually add up add up to something uh, so then we get to the boat, and we and that's where we get the, the setup to the the actual setup to the tension of the movie, which is really well done. So uh, Laura May is there. They're talking. They're talking about Addie. They're about to walk on this boat. So he's created a scenario where they're going to be out of touch for the day. And mm-hmm. as they're walking up the ramp to the boat, a messenger rides up and hands them a letter, and they read it. But they have to get on the boat. And there's a great shot of the phone booth of like we are. We are moving away from a connection. And it's such a strange letter when you think about it. It's like, I'm leaving. I'm leaving with one of your husbands. <laughs> you know, like, like I want to, we'll do this at the end, but I want to talk about Addie Ross. I think we need to talk about Addie Ross. But, but, but I mean, brilliant setup. It, it seems like very narratively convenient, but at the same time rings true. I feel like everybody's had that experience where something, you become aware of something bad at the exact moment you can't actually do anything about it. And then you have to go do the thing you were supposed to do. So like the misery, if if this is running through your head of like, and now I'm going to hang out with a bunch of little kids at a picnic, trying to like feed them and entertain them. Like that seems like a miserable day. And it's that's yeah. a really interesting setup. Yeah. they and, and of course they take different strategies to how to deal with that. Right. So, you know, Laura May throws herself into all the physical activities and uh, Rita is de- uh, de- dealing with hot dogs and Deborah seems is just sort of mo- moping a, a lot. Um, but yeah, you know, for, so a couple things have to happen. One is um, they have to, they fail to resist the temptation to read the letter ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in a way, you know, Sam, either way, whether you read the letter there or whether you bring it on the boat unread, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to eat at you either it's way. It's a ticking clock. Yes. And then the other thing is, this is a common theme I bring up with older films and that is 1949, right? There's no cell phones. Right. So, so that shot of the phone booth, is like, man, I mean, you can't do that today unless you posit that they've left their cell phones behind, which is pretty unlikely. So, I mean, that is one way which the film kind of shows its specificity in that particular time that it was made because they are being placed in a position where they cannot confirm one way or another what what Addie has has said. 
Well, and, 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 and this is where going down to three wives is such a great thing is you get that wonderful shot of the three of them all reading the letter, you know, so it's a three shot of them with the letter in front of them and you're, and you're hearing the voiceover of the reading of the letter and you're watching them read like that. That's a, again, that's not a shot that wins you an Oscar, but that's a great, it's a great moment. And it's the kind of thing where it's like that, that should be your poster. Like that right there is your poster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this then triggers this this series of flashbacks. Um, and so what we get to do is have these kind of mini domestic dramas, you know, three in a row in, in kind of the, you know, this, again, this is structured so similarly to Unfaithfully Yours. We have this intro uh, act, we have this middle act, which is really three, and then we have the closing act. Um and uh, so all of them are the are, are each wife looking back, um, as I said, and, and sort of, I think, pointing to a, to a crucial moment or series of moments which um, might explain the potential mm-hmm. of their husband leaving them. Now, one choice that's really strange is as they do the fade out, there is this weird electronic voice. Yes. And I don't understand. Like, like I, I, it, I, it sounds so like it's actually kind of great because it's, it's so, it's so out of place and so weird. And it's <laughs> like it's like repeating their dialogue, but through some, some kind of what it sounds like is, um, there are there are ways you can set up like a, a guitar where you can like speak into it and like the it will play the voice back, kind of modulated through. And I don't know what it is that's doing it, but it's such a strange choice. Yeah, Peter Frampton did that in 1970. Exactly what I'm thinking of. Yeah, Frampton comes alive. Yeah. yeah. No, well, I, you know, I, I guess it's it's to me it's to me it's the aural equivalent of when they want to show a flashback, you get like weighty lines or something like mm-hmm. that. So I think he's for whatever reason. He, well, I mean, I know why he's doing it with the voice because they are being haunted by Addie's voice that they hear in the letter. And so I think it's it's appropriate. You're right. It, it's it's bizarre. It's strange. If I didn't have the subtitles turned on, I'm not sure I would have been able to exactly discern what was being said. Um, but it puts you in a very different place. Uh, and and it it avoids any confusion. You know, we talked to unfaithful years about maybe some initial confusion about what was actually happening and was it Sir Alfred's imagination. Um, it signals very clearly, you know, that this is a, a flashback. So you have no question about where you are in time. So one of the things that I love about the, this first flashback and, and really all of them is that they are both telling this. So this first flashback is, Debbie and Brad and it is telling this basically the story of when after they get married when they move back to to town and this is Debbie meeting all of Brad's friends in the town but what it also does is it introduces all of the characters and their relationship and it sort of lays the groundwork for what we're going to see in uh, kind of story two and story three like the the seeds of that are there so um, we get basically all six of our central characters together. So we, we learn things like George and Rita were childhood sweethearts. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the, the nature of how they came together in part. There's some, there's some great economy there because we don't have to see or hear how they got together because Brad mentions it offhandedly. And then, and then it's like, okay, so that's taken care of. We're not going to see that story. Um, we, we get the introduction of the fact that Rita bought George's tux, which then leads to this, conversation about masculinity and gender roles which just seems like okay why are they talking about that but then you realize well that's going to be part part of the second story right there that 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 tux is even going to come back and clearly porter bringing that up has worked on george a little bit so he brings it back up when, when he's supposed to get dressed up for the party things like that get introduced we see the the um kind of distance between Porter and Laura May with, you know, where he doesn't dance and she does, which we see come back at the end of the movie, but also kind of the bickering between them. And then the, and then we get the introduction of sort of Brad's history with Addie Ross, which is just barely mentioned, which I love because it's just mentioned enough to get into your head. Like, what did it mean that we always thought they would be together? Like, like, okay. And, and, and we, you see um, Debbie asking about that and nobody, nobody answers that question. 
Um, but but it but it it helps to create this person that we're not going to meet. Uh, we, we're starting to create uh, aspects of her. What one one of the thing the other thing is I think is important about you know what we might call the you know kind of the uh, the, the setup is the is the fact that uh, this is a post World War II film um, four years after the war and Brad and Debbie met in the war during the war and. This is a theme or a, a, an observation that you, we, you, we have made with almost every one of the war films that we've talked about, especially when we were doing things like Grand Illusion um, and uh, Paths of Glory. The idea that when people put on a uniform and get into the military, it levels out all kinds of social distinctions. So and, and to me, that's a very important element of this film in, in terms of introducing Debbie and her insecurities, because the picture of Debbie that they admire. And here's another grace note. Right. You have the picture of Debbie on the piano in, De in Brad's house and the picture of Addie Ross later on in Porter's house is going to play a very mm -hmm. important role. Anyway, so in that picture, she's in uniform. Right. And 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 one of the one of the key things that becomes um, uh, difficult for her is being able to like dress appropriately. So in order to fit into Brad's world. So the idea is that when they're both in uniform, those social distinctions are no longer important. She doesn't have to worry about her hayseed upbringing as a, as a farmer's daughter. But once she gets out of uniform, she's literally a fish out of water and be, and, and is worried that she's not going to somehow fit into into Brad's Brad's world. So I think that that's you know e even when they admire her, they say you know she she's so wonderful in this photograph. It's almost though she's not the person that they then see before her live. They have a little bit of banter about that. So I think that's one more way in which this is also a post World War II film, and it would not evidently in 1949 be appropriate for her to put the uniform on. Mm -hmm. that's that's evidently not that doesn't have any cachet anymore because that's what i'm thinking oh put on the uniform just go in your uniform everybody will respect you well no evidently not anymore now one of the things that i loved about this is movies are are often showing us like oh all i have is this this old dress and they put it on and it's like yeah you're still a beautiful movie star in a dress i love how kind of ridiculous the dress is the flower and i i assume that must have been somewhat a fashion at some point but it's like it looks so silly when she comes down so you actually do feel bad for her yeah, instead of yeah. like what are you complaining about like ever people would kill to look like that but instead she looks like yeah, I don't know that maybe you should find something. Like I actually wanted her to change when I saw that dress. So like that's a wonderful piece of of um of costuming that exteriorizes her anxiety. It's like this is how I feel. I feel like I have this big stupid flower in front of me. Well, and the other thing it does which is also important Sam is it legitimizes her anxiety. Yes. Right, you know, in other words, it's even even though Rita tries to reassure her and say you must think we're awful snobs and all that, she evidently has every reason to be afraid that she does not fit in, and so I think the dress is a brilliant way of affirming that. Because you're right, if she came down something more attractive, you'd say, well, what, what are you worried about? No, you're right. That's an awful dress. I can't believe it was ever in fashion. Yeah, yeah, and Rita looks great at this at that moment too. Like that's also important. Is like, okay, if I have, if you, it almost looks like they're like they're shot on different film stock or it's like different things, you know, um, like like so. I, that, yeah, that's really really effective. So what I also love about this this first story is, as we get introduced to Addie, we see each of the men say something about her that they admire about her, which also are things that. Um, are kind of manifestations of their wives' anxieties about Addie. So Brad says, always the right thing at always the right time. And so that is, so meaning she always fits in perfectly. And you have Debbie, that's her big thing, right? Porter says, Addie has class. And that's, Laura, uh, Laura May is definitely, that's her thing, is like, I come from the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. I don't have class. George says she has taste, right? Which is not about money. It's about understanding quality, right? Having good taste, good taste in music, good taste in literature, which is going to become the big tension between them, right? They're both they're both people of letters, but in very different kinds of ways. And that becomes their tension in that one, in that one moment, as they go around the table, it's like, okay, we have now laid out what this movie is going to be about in 
in 25 seconds. Brilliant. And, and I love the remark about the right thing at the right time because that foreshadows Addie sending the uh, the, the birthday gift mm-hmm. uh, to George, which, of course, Rita has totally forgotten about, it, about his birthday. I mean, the, the wonderful thing about Addie is she is a real person um, who evidently has these genuine qualities, but she is also, and this is another connection back to Unfaithfully Yours and ultimately to Othello, she is also an imaginative construct. You know, um, because no individual is only the ideal features you see in them. In fact, I have to say, I keep thinking in my, my, my mind. So this wonderful woman who has great taste and class and always the right thing at the right time. She's basically stealing one of your husbands that they're, they're she can't be a paragon. I mean, she can't be this 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 ideal. And so I so I like the fact that, yeah, you could say there's objective correlatives for each of these ways that she's described. But you also have to say aren't they maybe like cherry picking a lot of her qualities and they're creating this Addy because you don't hear anything to the contrary, which certainly must exist. Right. And and we also find out that she was married yeah. and either she left her husband or her le- husband left her. So you're like, is this a deeply sad person? Yeah. And, and, yeah. but they're, but they're all like incapable of seeing her. Are they bad friends to her? She, cause she also seems like, She's given gifts to all of these people, right? And like, do they, do they like, like, I find her fascinating because we only get people's projections of her and we never see her except for in, in really like glancing ways. You see her arm at one point or things like that. So it causes us to like also project onto her and we're only given certain pieces to think about her. What about the possibility though, Sam, that she is also a deeply jealous person? I mean, what, sure. what, what, you know, she, she is as motivated by jealousy as the, as she is trying to get the wives motivated by jealousy. So, so if, 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 her, if everything were ideal in her world, she wouldn't need to steal one of her husbands. Right. No, that that's exactly it. And, and notice like this was a group of six friends and now it's a group of a different group of six friends and she's on the outside of it. Right. Yeah, yeah, Cause exactly. everybody else, everybody else is paired off and Debbie has sort of taken her place in that. And, and it's like, and you also wonder like, well, why didn't Brad marry Addie? Like, it, it seems like they were together at some point. So like, like yeah, it, it, it's like, it's like you could make the Addie Ross story and I'm, I'd be into that. I'd be like, okay, so what? Tell me about her. Like, you know, if Joseph Mankiewicz wanted to do that, I'd be interested. But clearly what's great about her is because we don't know those things and we don't see her. We're left to ask these kinds of questions and think about why does she have such a hold on these people? I have to make another really obvious comment because this this might be bothering uh, viewers, and I thought about it watching the film, and that is that Addie's role as both um, an absent character and a pseudo-omniscient narrator um, is very, um, uh, it's very inconsistent, um, but we allow the inconsistency. In other words, she gets set up, she gets set up as this omniscient narrator because you have the conversation between uh, Rita and Debbie in the car, for example, and they say, you know, does does Addie know that we talk about her? And that Addie, Addie's voiceover says, is yes, yes, I yes, I do. So there's a sense in which Mankiewicz is kind of having it both ways with her as a narrator because she's not exactly omniscient because she's in the picture, but she's also in some ways has access to scenes and thoughts that um, she wouldn't have as an actual player in 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 the in the drama. And, I and that's, what, and that's that. what's great about the ending of the movie, mm-hmm. the very ending when the glass tips over and she gives the last piece of voiceover. You're like, I, like it's like okay, like he he's kind of tipping his hand there, saying, "I've I've played a trick with this too." It's like this doesn't it this 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 is not consistent, but we're all okay with that, right? Right, right. And 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 I should also say two things about voiceover. One is. Um, as we talked about last week, uh, film noir was very popular this time, and noirs often featured voiceover. And most, or many of Mankiewicz's films do as well. Obviously, All About Eve, and then um, another one of his films I really love is Barefoot Contessa, uh, which actually has a number of different voiceovers. So there's a lot that he can achieve with the voiceover. So then we get to my favorite part of the movie is the is the second story, in part because my favorite two actors in this movie are Anne Southern and, uh, and Kirk Douglas. I think they're fantastic so we get this the story of this dinner party that they're throwing for for rita's boss 
Um, so we get an int- we get the introduction of Sadie at this point. So we get a new character brought in. And notably, Brad and Debbie are gone now. They're not part of this story, which is one of the things I like is he's like, okay, I've used them. I've told you what you need to know about them. Let me move them out. And now let's focus more on George and Rita and on Porter and um, uh, Porter and Laura May. They're going to be here because I still want to say some things about them. And then I'm going to tell their story third. So he does sort of strip away as you go. I really like that. Um, I also here's where we really pick up this idea of like Rita as a professional woman who makes more money than George. And that, you know, this is so much of this is about sort of the tension between uh, art and commerce, you know, like, like they're, they're both, like I said, they're both writers, people of letters, but you know, George is a, is a school teacher and it's, I can't quite tell whether he's by being a school teacher, if he teaches at a high school or a college, cause they call him professor and these things. So he's, he's definitely like, puts value in education and the arts and like has a high view of literature. And this is um, juxtaposed with writing for radio. And he even does the like corrections to her grammar and he calls it, you know, do you have to say it in radio speak and things like that? Like, I find that really interesting. Well, it's, it's also interesting that Mankiewicz, as you've already suggested, he wants to kind of play with this notion of gender roles and you've have the, you have the earlier argument between George and Porter over, you know, what it means to be a man. And, you know, according to Porter's definition, George isn't really a man because he's not the provider for, for his, uh, for, for his family. And, and I, I think, you know, Mankiewicz kind of, he ends up with a solution that in a way kind of, he tries to come up with a solution that both empowers, that doesn't reduce um, Rita's power, right? Because, the reason why she's going to uh, stand up to Mrs. Manley is because she wants to be the independent person that George has married. At the same time, there is kind of a suggestion that there's a power imbalance that needs to be corrected. And I just have to say that it didn't strike me until reflection that Mrs. Manley's name is Manley. I wrote that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it makes me think of Manley Pointer and Flannery O'Connor. And, and, it, and it's particularly interesting when she talks about the effect that that, um, that radio ads have on people, right? There's penetration and then saturation. And the way George picks up on that is is, is fantastic. So so I, I think this this relit marriage, well, also, also true of Laura May and Porter's, but this marriage is so much about the 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 appropriate role of the man and and, and the woman in 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 the marriage and in and who has the power because of of the money that they they make and of course Rita is also a bit of a social climber too right she yes. wants to put on an elegant uh, dinner party and have Sadie show up in uh, French made outfit and say dinner is served not soups on and is like yeah so there's a lot of fun around that well and I and I love how the um the i love mr manly who is like who who i mean so like like they're a caricature of how porter sees george and rita yes right now the other thing i love about this is george and rita seem like the two people where it's like george is never gonna leave rita right like you like but at the same time it's like um so so what do they do he's like he puts the most charismatic beautiful man in the movie playing George so it's like that's the person Addie would want to steal right if you're looking at uh, you know all 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 props to to Jeffrey Lynn and um and Paul Douglas Jeffrey Lynn just looks like a washed out like kind of attractive man Paul Douglas looks like a catcher's mitt a little bit um but and and, and Kirk Douglas is like is like this is like the perfect version of per- Kirk Douglas you know it's two years after um uh after out of the past and it's like man was I drawn to him in this movie <laughs> And then Anne Southern is the woman that I'm most drawn to. So I'm like, these are the most beautiful people in this movie to me. And and Kirk Douglas gets, I mean, m- many of the lines that I like. I mean, Kirk Douglas kind of gets, he gets all the really good lines, especially his whole speech on his defensive culture and his criticism of radio. I mean, he he kind of he kind of and it's he's right smack dab in the middle of a film. So he kind of he kind of does get the spotlight. And man, does he ever carry it off now the downside of that is i feel like potentially the movie crescendos in that moment and it like that's like the high point of the movie and and i don't enjoy the third story as much 
Um, and I get structurally why it's there, but it's like, but his, I think the best stuff is in that is in that moment. Uh, or is in, uh, excuse me, in that in that middle story. Yeah, I, I I agree that the third story is is a is a harder story, but it's interesting that it's the story that ultimately Mankiewicz wants to end the film mm-hmm. on as well. And but this also leads to another way in which um, the structure of this film is is amazing because. Each of the stories, each of the flashbacks takes place at different times and over a different span of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the Debbie and Brad story, um, that takes place on one evening, some years in the distance. It's just maybe not quite clear how long after the war that is. The scene with George and Rita is evidently the night before mm-hmm. because, because when um, Debbie picks up Rita, George is, is, is still mad. Uh, evidently, we're not speaking. So, so I assume that that, and, and because when we when we get when we get out of the flashbacks, George is talking about the surprise he didn't tell Rita about. Evidently, the night or or a couple of days before. Well, because when he comes into the house, he says, "I have a surprise." I have. Yeah, right. She's like, "Why are you smiling?" And he says, "I have great news." And then he never gets to say what it is. You're right. So we don't find out about it till they come back from the from the picnic. So I think that's like the night before. And then the um, Laura May and Porter story, that's told over a period of time. We don't exactly know how long that was that they were. Well, we know that they start dating before Christmas and we know that they get engaged on New Year's. So it's at least a couple of a couple of months. But at the same time, he Mankiewicz, I mean, he's using I think this is why he got best director, Sam, because he's using very different techniques in each of these flashbacks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then the Laura May one. The port uh, with Porter, you you get this kind of classic montage. You know, here they here they are pulling up in the car. Here she is showing some leg. You know, here she is giving him a kiss. I just I just think it's masterful and and unlike Unfaithful Yours in the sense that you know he in, in Unfaithful Yours Sturgis follows the same basic pattern and he varies the music of course, but here the pattern is different in each case, um, which I think is a way of talking. Like he kind of has to do it because these are three different relationships and they can't be treated exactly the same. Absolutely. Right. So in that third story, I think it's, I think we get four dates over the course of yeah, however, yeah. however long that is. Um, and we see sometimes just the, sometimes you see the whole date. Sometimes you see snippets. There's only one other of our central six characters in this. And Mankiewicz knows what he's doing. It's the big movie star. Kirk Douglas walks through the date. You know, because if we're if we're gonna have one person stay there, that's the person that we want to see. I want to see, um, and it's such an interesting setup because both of them seem both Porter and Laura May seem a little mercenary in what they're doing. I mean, Laura May is a bit of a gold digger, and quite frankly, Porter's a bit of a lecherous boss, a little bit <laughs> like okay, and because she she indicates I'm not the first person you've gone down this path with, right? right. You know, and and she and so so. Um, the 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 third date when they're at his house is the is like the 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 kind of great it's the longest section of this and it's a just this i think kind of a great moment of them sort of laying out like uh what they want and like incapable of talking about how they feel about each other uh and this is where we get Addie ross as part of this because she is the picture on the um picture on the piano picture in the silver frame and that's how she expresses what she wants to be like i want to be a picture in a silver frame in my own house now at the end of the movie when we come back to this room she is a picture in the silver frame on the piano i don't know if you if you caught that but there's also a fantastic joke when they first cut to that porter is sitting at the piano and it's like oh i didn't i didn't know you played piano (laughs) he gets up and it's a player piano and i'm like that or, or it's a record or something that's yeah 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 it's like you know so he's he talks about class and he's obviously aspirational um i i guess one of the reasons i i like this section uh in this relationship even though it doesn't have the same kind of um uh attraction the others do is because i find laura may a very um conflicted character Mm -hmm. you know she's she's playing porter and and so, you know, when they're having their argument later on, he says, you know, you never did anything without showing me your price tag, which is true, right? I mean, I mean, it, it, she does seem to be playing him in the way that a gold digger would. And yet she says her aspiration is to marry somebody who that's, that's, 
he, to marry her is something that that person wants more than anything else in the world. And so it seems as though um, her actions are at somewhat cross purposes with her desire, mm-hmm. uh, unless she thinks that by doing that, she's going to get Porter to say, oh, yes, I'm madly in love with you. The problem is the way she's behaving tells him, signals to him that she's not interested in love, that she's interested in a transaction. And so I think he then has to end up sort of protecting himself because if she thinks all she's doing is getting a a sugar daddy, then that's all I'm going to be to her. I'm not going to expose to her my heart because she's going to stomp on it and she's not interested in it. So I think, I I just think there's a lot of psychological complexity in, in their, in their relationship, which, which may make it either easier or harder to bleed at the end that they actually love each other, even though they never say it. Um, yeah. They actually love each other. Well, because what's great is with her saying that what I want is expressing that what she wants is to be married. You can read that as like, I want to seal the deal right. or, yeah. or as like, I actually want something that is a forever kind of thing, <laughs> you know, right. like, 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 and, 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 and the, the, the great thing about it is, because they don't talk with each other about this. I mean, there's this great line at the end when they come back and they're, they're, you know, we're in present day and they're at, they're at their house. And she says in three years. So this tells us when this happened in three years, there's one word we've never said to each other. So neither of them have ever talked about love. Right. Right. And you're like, you've been married for a long time and that's never been. So it shows that they've kept each other at a kind of distance. Um, you know, uh, because of that. And, and the great way that he shows this without needing to show us three years of marriage. This again, a great piece of writing and a nice piece of directing is what the proposal looks like. And I wrote this down. It goes like this. Okay. You win. I'll marry you. How about it? She says, thanks for nothing. And then he says, you made a good deal, Laura May. And then the mom comes in and she seems very happily to say, we're getting married. (laughs) It's like, well, (laughs) So at that moment, you're like, I, I don't see this working, working out. And, but we know that they're still married as this, as this plays out. Well, the other line he adds in that dialogue, which I also wrote down, uh, Sam, is we're starting out where most couples take years yes. to get to, which is exactly true. But, you know, so, you know, obviously we'll, we'll talk about the end and um, Mankiewicz's misdirection of, of, uh, of the audience. Um, but, you, ha- you know, I have to say that, if there was anybody who was more, more most likely to run away with Hattie, it was, it's Porter. When you think about the way the various, I mean, which is interesting is she, he's also the person who has the least clear rela- past relationship to, 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 to her other than his, uh, you know, she's the an ideal to him, but we know about her previous invo- involvement with George and, and, uh, um, and uh, Brad, we don't really know much about what, how she and Porter have actually been involved with each other. So let's talk about the ending. So they they um they get off the boat, they come home. First we see Rita come home and music's playing and George is there and we find out that George's secret was not that he was running away but he was going to direct Twelfth Night and that's what the note on the record was about and I'm so glad that got dealt with right away cuz those <laughs> those are my favorite people so like I need to make sure that anxiety goes away. Um, then we go to Debbie. She comes home and there's a call from Brad that he won't be home. But again, we were told he wasn't going to be home. <laughs> like, like, like we knew that, but that takes on a different meaning for her. Um, she's definitely like the, the saddest person, like per, uh, disposition wise in the movie. So like this also feeds into that a little bit. Then we get, we go to Laura May, whose mother is at home. Laura May comes in. Porter's also not there. They comment about how strange that he's gone so late. And then he walks in. Um, and they're still sort of talking like very transactionally. Like he says, like, how did it feel? Did it, did it feel like you were like, you finally were free. Like you, yeah. you had the goods on me. So like he's telegraphing to us right there. Like, yeah, like I know what happened because the other husbands don't know about this letter, but like, but Porter, Porter knows because Porter was part of it. Right. And, and mm-hmm. so he's already telling us that. And he repeats that then again, later at the, um, at the, at the country club where yeah, they have yeah. the dance. Yeah. So yeah, let me the, the other little thing you learn in this scene is that she doesn't like creme de mint. Yes. 
which which again is one more way in which she was playing him in the restaurant. Yeah. Right, right. And it's and it's his version of class, right? Yeah, yeah. right, right. <laughs> yeah. Um and so so then we get to the 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 scene at the country club dance which is an echo of mm-hmm. of the first uh flashback story because yeah. we're in the same place, the same table. We see again Debbie and uh and Porter the ones not dancing. Um and uh Debbie is depressed because she thinks Brad has left and and um she kind of uh pushes back against Porter about like you know Laura May loves you and mm-hmm. you know and 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 you're killing basically you're killing her by not by not acknowledging that um and then Debbie's you know everybody comes back to the table Debbie's about to leave and this is where Porter says you know sit down Brad was not the one who left with Addie I did um and then again he turns to Laura May to say there you go you have everything you wanted yeah. you can you can walk away as if he knows I mean it's all it almost feels like a, like a beauty and the beast story it's like yeah, yeah. all right like like you've made this bargain and you've you've held up your end of the bargain like I'm I'm going to let you out I so cuz like if you wonder well why does he leave with her it's like I almost wonder if it's like I'm going to do this because I feel bad for the person who married me. Um, and uh, so I'm going to give her everything she wanted. I'm going to give her an out and a, a chance to get a divorce where she's going to get a big settlement from me or something. Um, and true to their relationship, this is, this was great is that they don't have this deeply romantic moment where they express their feelings. She just says like, Oh, if you said something, I wasn't listening. And it's like, they're expressing okay like sure. we've all we've all said everything it's out in the open and neither of us is leaving right now and then they dance which they have never which we have never seen them do before and that's a meaningful connection yeah i mean the irony of of their relationship is they both want the same thing and they both prevent each other from achieving it until until Addie becomes the instrument of their reconciliation so how do you feel about the uh the states of these marriages by the end of this movie <laughs> <laughs> I feel pretty hopeful, you know. I mean, I, I think that um, I think I, I, I oh, I, I feel best about George and Rita. I I, I feel like because I think they've got the solidest, most solid relationship to begin with. I worry a little bit about Deborah and Brad that she. I, I think there's going to be, you know, you often want to know like what does the next day look like. Uh, um, I think probably it's remorse for her. Uh, thinking that even after all this time, she still fears that she doesn't have a solid relationship with Brad. So I think they've got they've got some work to do, but I think they'll be okay. Um, and I don't know. I, th- I think Porter and Laura may have been so good at despising each other. I think they'll do a pretty good job of loving each other. I I, lo- I love that answer. So do you have thought I, we we got to get to get out of here? But do you have thoughts on the glass tipping over at the end? Well, that's. Yeah, I, I I've been thinking about the glass tipping over at the end, and I don't know if you, if we're supposed to take that as um so, as something about a comment on Addie's you know best laid plan uh, just goes awry and it crashes, or whether it's saying something about you know life isn't going to all be champagne, or it says something about social status. I'm not I'm not quite sure how to take all of that, but I to me it's sort of like yeah, you know you can plan this sort of perfect thing, but it's not going to necessarily work out. Yeah, yeah. I I I don't I don't have a great explanation for it, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but but it it works as an ending because they need something. At, they need yeah, yeah, there at the exactly, end. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's. Just, I mean, you you can't you can't pick one of the couples to focus on. So and and, and that drinking of champagne has been a consider. There's a lot of champagne drunk throughout the film. So maybe that's that's what yeah. the banquet's having. And, and, and it gives you one last shot that maybe Addie is a kind of benevolent force still <laughs> maybe 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 so yeah, yeah 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 uh do you have other we're we're running out of time but do you have other thoughts on this I, I just want to end with a quote from a critic uh about the film uh two sentences he says it's a story of three women envisioning the end of their marriages in the morning and feeling them strengthened by the end of the day it goes down like an anxiety glazed donut with a filling of hope i, I that's I just, good that's, that's very good so what do you have for us for two weeks we won't record next week because of thanksgiving so what do you have for us for two weeks from now well i've been going back and forth on what to do sam but i think i think what we need to do is i've been wanting to introduce us to hey video star listeners this is sam mulberry cutting in a few days later the movie that barrett was going to suggest for next week is currently not streaming anywhere so uh i'm jumping in to give his second recommendation so what we're going to be watching for our episode uh in two weeks 
is the 1974 Ingmar Bergman film Scenes from a Marriage. Now, Bergman made this as a long uh, sort of TV miniseries uh, initially and then cut that into a theatrical release. So we're going to be watching the theatrical release of Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage from 1974. This is streaming on the Criterion channel and probably also available to rent or buy on Amazon Prime. So thanks to Barrett for recommending A Letter to Three Wives. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back in two weeks to talk about Scenes from a Marriage in the video store. (laughs) 